Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Uh, We're going to look at another issue in our deeper walk with Christ. And we've used the illustration of roots when we started this series. And I hope that uh, that word conjures up in your minds the images of strength and nourishment, of depth and stability. And certainly uh, that's what we're talking about when we talk about roots. And when we started this series, we talked about five very specific roots that are essential to a deeper, more Christ-centered life. We talked about the root that's called our death with Christ, and we're going to be looking at that this morning. Uh, We're going to, we talked about our hidden life with Christ, and Rich Campbell was the one who took us through that which uh, concerned our identity in Christ. Uh, Next week, we'll talk for a number of weeks on our union with Christ, our walk with Christ. Then there's the root of our resurrection with Christ. And then finally, our hope or vindication with Christ, which is the root that draws for us now power off of the future. Now, each of those roots gives a special quality of life to the believer who has them. And yet, conversely, if you lack any of these roots, it not only severely diminishes that quality of life, but it brings about a very unhealthy stability. And I got a very vivid picture of that just a few weeks ago when uh, it was reported to me at the office one day Uh, a note that said, your wife just called, a tree has fallen on your house. So I jumped in the car and raced home, and sure enough, as I was driving up the driveway, here's this huge sweet gum tree that snapped off, came down, grazed the roof, and fell in the front yard. And uh, it, it seemed odd to me because there was no sign of unhealth in this tree. Its leaves were lush and green. And so I called a tree service to help me carry away the debris, and as we were standing out there talking, I said, I I can't understand why this tree collapsed. I mean, it snapped right at the base. And uh, on top of that, the weather was clear that day. It was the the winds were calm. There was no storm or anything. It just uh, popped. My wife was in the house and heard this incredible snap and walked out and there it was. And so uh, the uh, gentleman who came out to look at uh, uh, the disaster there walked over and he examined that and he said, you know, it seems to me that what really has taken place is that when you built your house a number of years ago, the root system was damaged. And uh, it slowly has kind of collapsed from within in the, in the earth to where it had hardly any at all. It had just enough to draw a little bit of sustenance to give greenery to these leaves. And then on a particular day with no wind, with no trauma or anything, it just snapped and collapsed. Now I mention that because there are times where maybe you've been puzzled when you've watched uh, outwardly, healthy, wholesome Christian who has all the signs of vitality in life just snap. And you wonder why. There's no apparent reason. There's no storms. There's no crisis in life. And you wonder why they've they've folded in their cards. It's because there's no roots. These roots are essential to someone who desires to live the Christian life. And so this morning, we're going to examine again this very essential root that we call our death with Christ. Now, you know or should know that in becoming a Christian, there's a death that takes place. You must die to your unbelief. Uh, You must die to the fact that you 
would in some way be good enough for God at some point. And finally, when you discover that that's not going to work, then you're prepared in that death to receive that free gift that's called salvation. But this root of death doesn't end with salvation. Death not only starts the Christian life, death, as grotesque as that word may sound, it fuels the Christian life. You see, as you go through your life, wherever you are in your pilgrimage with Christ, you're going to reach other moments of unbelief that you have to die to in which Christ is asking you to die. You're going to reach other moments in your life, even after you've walked a long pilgrimage with Christ, where you're going to come to the place where you're going to discover that in one or so areas of your life, you're still trying to work it out and be good enough to handle this problem. And in the exhaustion of that and in the death of that, you'll be prepared for the life of Christ in that particular area. The deeper this root of death goes in your life, the more enriched your life will become. And I believe that's why Bill Parkinson last week made such a paradoxical statement that maybe caught you by surprise when he said that when you look into the face of a radiant believer, a believer who has stability in his or her life, a believer who is strong in his or her relationship with Christ, you are in fact looking into the face of death. Of death. Why is it that one needs to die after they've become a Christian? Why is it that this principle goes on? It is because the Christian, though freed from the penalty of sin that separated them from their relationship with God, is still not separated from the harsh reality of sin that will continue to plague your life and keep you from experiencing God. And that harsh reality confronts us from two very principal sources. One is the hostile world we live in. It's a spiritually hostile world we live in. And Bill addressed that last week. The other is an unholy union that is found within each one of us here this morning. And I want to take a look at that unholy, unholy union by having you turn to Romans uh, chapter 7. And let's see if you can see it as I read along. Romans chapter 7. And we're going to start with um, verse 21. <clears throat> now here the apostle is speaking about himself, his own life. But his testimony is our testimony. He says this in verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. Now that's interesting. Here's an apostle. And as he talks about his own life, he says, you know, as I've lived my Christian life, I've found this, that there is evil that is in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man that is in my spirit, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Do you see the unholy union he's talking about? Then he says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And when he uses that term, by the way, he's drawing upon an analogy that was very clear at that time in the Roman Empire. One of the penalties for murder in the Roman Empire was that the person who had committed that murder was sentenced to a life of exile, but before they were put out in their exile, the corpse of the person that they were murdered was strapped to their back and tied very tightly with ropes. And they were let out into the desert, unable to free themselves from that corpse. And as you might imagine, in the hot sun, it began to putrefy. 
and suddenly the rottenness of that corpse began to seep into the flesh of that person who had created that murder and gangrene would set in and a horrific, terrifying death. Paul says, that's my experience. I am wedded to, I am in union with a body of death who will set me free. Turn over and look at Romans chapter 8, verse 10. Let's see if you can see the union there. He says this in verse 10, And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. When you read that verse, immediately you're confronted with this intimate mismatch, this unholy union. It's a marriage of sorts where two opposites in you, two opposites in you have been joined with absolutely no hope of reconciliation. War is the only love these two partners experience. Death is the only peacemaker in this union. Can you see it? I want you to underline it. Here's the one partner. He says, it's Christ who is in us. That's one partner in this unholy union. This new nature of the Spirit of God coming into our life. But it's joined with, if you'll notice there, a body that is dead because of sin. That's the other partner which is a reference to our fallen human nature. It's a, it's a reference to what oftentimes the biblical writers call the flesh. In fact, Paul calls it the flesh, doesn't he, in verse 12. Now, I want you to know the non-Christian has no clear awareness of his or her fallen nature. I didn't. Before I was a Christian, I had no sense that there was another force in me than just me, the principle of evil. I didn't realize its grip over my life. I didn't know how it drove my choices. I mean, if you were to ask me when I was 17 or 18, I would have just told you the things I do. That's just the way I am. And I hear people still talk that way. 40, 50 years old, that's just the way I am. But you know, it's not the way you are. And you discover that the minute the Spirit of God, Jesus Christ, Christ comes in you because when He comes in you, He comes in you with a spotlight and He begins to search around. And he begins to expose certain things. And one of the things he exposes is like it says in verse 21 of chapter 7, you find that there is a principle of evil in you and that your real life has been suppressed all this time by an evil which keeps you from being the kind of person that you were created to be. You've been manipulated. There's an invisible war suppressing the real you. That's what Paul's saying. And when Christ comes in, this war breaks out even further between him, the Christ who is in you, and this flesh that's in you. You felt that, hadn't you, this week? And whoever wins that war on a day-to-day -day basis owns your behavior. Now, the flesh is the most formidable enemy any of us will face. It's subtle. It's seductive, it's convincing, it's powerful, and unfortunately for us, it poses in all kinds a myriad of masks. It can only be conquered in two ways. First, by exposure, by a clear exposure that what's going on in your life is clearly the flesh. And then once it's exposed, by these specific personal acts of self-execution, which we'll talk about here in a moment. Now listen. It is Christ who is in you who exposes the flesh. 
But once it's been exposed by his spirit, it will be you who will be called upon to drive the executioner's stake into the heart of the flesh so that it might die. And amazingly, out of that grotesque moment that no one will see but you, no one will know what's going on but you, this death, amazingly, out of that grotesque moment, spiritual life is born. Authentic spiritual life. Life change suddenly is set in motion. The Christ-centered life is engaged and we begin to live for the first time as God intended, not as the flesh has been demanding us all this time. This process of exposing the flesh and then dying to it will be a process that will be repeated for the person who wants to go deeper in the Christ-centered life over and over again throughout our lifetime. Because death is the only way that you and I can be parted from the evil that's in us and given over to a living relationship with Christ. That's why it says in verse 13, if you'll notice there in Romans 8, he says, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit, now listen, you, you, not Christ, see, he's revealed it, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. And it will be exciting. Now for a moment, I want to focus on the little phrase in verse 13, do you see it there that says, according to the flesh? Because I said, as I said earlier, the flesh wears a myriad of masks. And what I'd like to do is unmask the flesh that I've seen in me. And that I have had the opportunity to see in others over 20 something years of ministry. What does it mean to walk according to the flesh? I have four answers that I want to give you to that question kind of unpacking the layers of the flesh. First of all, and probably the most obvious, is according to the flesh means wrong behaviors. It means wrong behaviors. When Christ enters our life at any point in time, when he's entered your life, probably one of the things that you immediately felt was his spotlight on certain personal behaviors of yours. That's part of this new life in Christ. Suddenly he's turned the spotlight or you begin to feel his holy pressure on maybe your filthy tongue. Or maybe it is your drunkenness or your temper or your overindulgence in material things or your immorality or your greediness. I felt those things at the very moment of my spiritual birth. And it goes on over a period of time as he moves to maybe less overt things, but he still applies his holy pressure to those things. And in this exposure, what Christ is asking for me to do is to die. To look to those things and say no to those things. To turn my back on those things. And, and in that moment of death, I may not know what else to do, but what it will impel me to do is at least in the saying no to those things is to turn to Christ. And that's what we'll talk about in the weeks to come because that's our union with Christ as he moves us from death to life. This holy pressure on our behavior will occur intermittently throughout our life. Every Christian is going to find from time to time the living Christ within pressing you to give up a particular behavior. You felt that, hadn't you? Sometimes over a period of life as you move into a new life stage, he'll put pressure on some new behavior you're about to engage in. Or maybe he'll 
put pressure on an old behavior that's now reared its ugly head once again in your particular life. But here's what I want you to know. How you respond in each of those moments, they are critical, life-changing moments. The world doesn't see it. Your family doesn't see it. Your spouse won't even see it. But how you respond in those critical moments will determine whether you will step forward into deeper spiritual water or step back on the shoreline. That's how important they are. It's the walking into the deep water of the character of Christ or retreating back into the layers of what the Bible calls your flesh. Now, there are three responses possible when God puts a searchlight on one of your behaviors, and two of them are bad. Kind of like Daryl Royal, the old Texas coach, used to say, when you throw a forward pass, there's three things that can happen to it, and two of them are bad. It's like that. The first thing that can happen when you respond is that you can yield to this pressure that God puts on your behavior, and you can die to that wrong behavior, and you can turn from it, and you can say, God, help me! And that's exactly what He wants, you, wants to do for you. A second thing is that you can resist God's pressure and you can give in to that behavior and then you can offer your regrets afterwards or your excuses. That's a bad one. But what's even worse, you can do like so many and you can resist God's pressure and hide your sin. You still sin, but now you go off and you hide your sin. You cover your sin and then you go out and publicly appear as if you're free of it. That's the worst choice. You know, early in the life of the new church, God dealt with that kind of thinking. Now, He dealt with it in a way that I don't see Him really dealing with today. But it was when the church, in their newfound faith and walking with Christ, were bringing a lot of their material goods and giving them to the apostles to give to the poor. And one such couple who had a choice as God pressed upon them this holy pressure, they come to the apostle Peter, Ananias and Sapphira, and they sell a piece of land, and they come in sin wanting to appear holy. You see, what they did is they kept back a portion of that selling price, but then came to present to the apostles this money as if they, had, as if they were giving all of that selling price. See, they wanted to appear righteous, but they wanted to hide in their sin. And so many do that today. And you know what Peter said to them? He said, you have not lied to men, you've lied to God. You've missed the whole point of spiritual life, of authentic redemption, of walking with God. You see, this is a shell of spirituality. For you to come in sin trying to appear as righteous, that's, that's the worst behavior of all. According to the flesh means wrong behaviors. And most of us are aware of that. Most of us feel that. Most of us get the opportunity to, to, to repent of that. But you know what? I want you to know the flesh goes a lot deeper than that. That's what we're going to look at in the next three. The second one is wrong strategies. Wrong strategies. And by wrong strategies, I mean that we look to a particular way of living for our hope in life and our answer to life. It's not overt sin. In fact, the way we're living, people wouldn't even call it sin. But the way we're relating to our world and to others is a way in which we're banking on a strategy saving us 
rather than God saving us. I want you to notice in the book of Jeremiah that Jeremiah points it out for the people of Israel. Take your Bibles now because this is an important verse and turn to Jeremiah. You'll find it there. Jeremiah chapter 2. And notice what this prophet says to the people. It is, this is a powerful verse because what it illustrates are these wrong strategies that we live by. Then I'll press it more practically here in a moment. But in chapter 2, verse 13, he says this to the people of Israel. He says, for my people have committed two evils. Do you see it there? Two evils. The first is this. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's the first evil. The second evil is that they have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now here's the point. The point is, is not just that they had forsaken God, who is the life giver, but they've gone over and had the, the thought that they could create these cisterns that could give them life, but they don't work. They leak. They fail. Now here's how that works out in application in your and I's life. For instance, in marriage, we often use wrong strategies. We think that if we can criticize our mate enough, point out enough of their faults, they'll respond. Right? And so, though our response is not favorable... Though they don't respond, we keep thinking that if we press hard enough, if we're clear enough, if we can get right up in their face and help them understand how sloppy they are, that what they'll do is say, you know, you're right. I really am a slob. <laughs> right? Now, let me ask you this. How many times has that worked for you? See, that's what I call a wrong strategy. We keep using it and reusing it and reusing it, thinking somewhere along the line it's going to work while we, neglect, while we neglect what God says when He says that we're to encourage, we're to build up, we're to model, and in that we get what we want. You know, they did a survey here recently and they asked what was the number one thing that they could identify that made couples successful in marriage. It wasn't criticism. You know what it was? It was that they respect each other. They keep respecting one another. They respect what they do. They look for places of respect. And that brings about dissatisfaction. Another wrong strategy is the son who grows up under a dad who's, who's got the company for him. And uh, the whole time his dad's saying, now, son, when, when you get to a certain age, we're going to turn this, this business over to you. But the son is neither gifted for that, nor does he want that. And yet he feels that constant pressure. And so there comes a place where there's this tremendous rift between son and father. And the son goes off, you know, feeling disapproved of. And the father pulls back, feeling rejected. And the son turns around and here's his strategy. And sometimes this drives a man, not just in his 20s, but in his 30s and 40s and 50s. He turns and looks at his dad and whether he says it or not, he says... I'm going to show you. <clears throat> and so his whole life is not led by the Spirit. His whole life is to prove to his dad that he can be a success without his company. 
and he works hard and he builds his estate and he keeps looking for that approval and his dad doesn't get it so he just works that much harder. And you know what it does for him? It drains all the life out of him. That's what it does for him. There's the workaholic who incessantly drives himself to accumulate power and possessions. And why does he do it? He does it because it's his strategy so that he can feel acceptable and worthy. He came from humble beginnings. And he felt like, if I can just accumulate enough power, people will finally give me the honor I deserve. But behind it is a mask of the flesh that tells him every day, you're not good enough. And we know from people who have ascended to the highest of accomplishments, driven by that wrong strategy, that when they get at the very pinnacle, they still don't feel worthy. They, don't, they still don't feel good enough because the flesh is behind it all. The woman who constantly gives in to keep the peace at home, thinking that that strategy is going to keep the peace, is the woman who every month, every year that goes by, finds the conflict and the dysfunction escalating, but she keeps thinking in strategy that if I just don't say anything, if I just don't confront this horrible reality, it'll go away, but it doesn't. The teenager who uses sex to find the love her father didn't give her finds in the end anything but love. You see, these are wrong strategies, and every one of us here today have a wrong strategy or two in our life that we use as a replacement for God, and there are leaky cisterns. But when we turn to God and ask Him to turn the searchlight on, He comes in over time, and He does it in different ways, and He's very gentle about how He does it. He slowly over time reveals to us these areas of brokenness. And when we see it for what it is and die to it for what it is, it's only at that moment that we have the possibility to be reborn. There's a third issue in this according to the flesh. It, all, it, it means uh, wrong responses. There's wrong strategies, there's wrong behaviors, this is wrong responses. And by wrong responses, I'm talking about inadequate efforts that we use at self-protection. We see that as early as Genesis 3 when Adam sinned and uh, God, his father, came walking in the garden and uh, called out to his son, where are you? No word. And then God asked this question, have you taken of the forbidden fruit? Now, you would expect a son who understands his father's love for him to step out as he was, as he was created, naked and unashamed. That's that transparency. To step out and say, Dad, I failed you. Will you forgive me? But what you see is a response that has been true of the human race ever since Genesis 3. You see him step out to talk to his dad how? Covered up. Trying to protect himself. And rather than say, Dad, I'm sorry, what does he say? He says, the woman you gave me gave me this fruit and I ate. See, I'm trying to layer up here. I'm trying to protect. I'm, I'm on the defense. I don't want anybody to hurt me. And I've chosen a wrong response to keep myself from being hurt. But you know what? It did everything but keep him from being hurt. Because in that response, the very thing that he was trying to save himself from 
came crashing down upon him. He was hurt even worse. And so are we when we practice these wrong responses. I know many people who desperately, when they're in pain or under pressure, they're the kind of people who, at that point, the thing they need most is for somebody to move towards them and touch them and love them. But you know what their response to pain and pressure always is? It's to withdraw. It's to get alone. The things that we do keep us from the things that we so desperately want. And I want you to know if we are to go deeper with Christ, if you'll allow him to search your heart, there will be times when the shields are down that he will say to you, people have been trying to tell you this for years. This is killing you. Trust me. This needs to die. You can try to defend yourself in a thousand different ways, but his authoritative voice will come back and say, this needs to die. And then the choice is yours. A last, according to the flesh, would be this one. Wrong agendas. Wrong agendas. Besides Judas Iscariot, I think the most tragic figure in the whole Bible is King Saul. If you read the story of King Saul, you'll find that in many ways he was an honorable man. He was a good king. But ultimately, his torment in life and his downfall in life came not because of a wrong behavior so much or a wrong strategy or a wrong response. His downfall was much deeper than all of those. At the core of his being, he had a wrong agenda that he could not let go of. You see, he became king, and then after he became king, he thought of himself as a king, and when it became clear he was no longer to be king, he could not let go of it. He couldn't let it go. So rather than step aside, Saul fought to his death for an agenda that was wrong, clearly wrong, an agenda that became his God, an agenda that became his fixation for happiness. And I want you to know from time to time, God is going to challenge everyone in this auditorium severely about the issues of wrong agendas. He will, in His gracious goodness, allow circumstances to crush our plans, to wipe out our dreams, to destroy the agendas that we thought had His blessing. We had, we had claimed it by faith, and He was going to give it to us. And now all of that comes collapsing in on us. And in those moments, the flesh demands, the flesh will cry out in bloody murder not to let go of that. That we need it. We must have it. That we must continue to live for what isn't anymore. For what's gone. For what's forever altered. It will say, don't let go. Keep fighting. And if you have nothing left, just be bitter. But don't let go. While you have God who is in you, Christ in you, saying, you needed to let go of that. Don't keep trying to pick up the pieces. I have a different agenda. Trust me. Rest in me. Look to me. My plans are not for calamity. My plans are for your good. But you got to trust me and die to that agenda. I want you to trust me. That's going to happen to everyone here at some point in your life. 
And you'll be faced with a fork in the road whether to hang on to that wrong agenda or in that crisis of faith to move on into deeper water with the Christ who is in you. So these four items, wrong behaviors, wrong strategies, wrong responses, a wrong agenda, I think they adequately answer the question, what does it mean to live according to the flesh? Now I want you to look at verse 13 of Romans one final time because you'll see in verse 13 the two choices or the two deaths that lay before us in this chapter. The first is that we can either live to die or the second we can die to live. That's the central thrust of verse 13. Do you see it there? It says, for if you are living according to the flesh, uh, my text says you must die, but actually a better rendering is you are about to die. If you're going to live according to the flesh, then I just want you to know what's up ahead. You're about to die. On the other hand, there's another choice. If by the Spirit you choose to put to death the deeds of the body, here's His promise. You will live. Die to live. At the beginning of this message, I told you that the flesh is conquered only by two ways. Exposure and then execution. I want to give you three ways I think the Spirit exposes the flesh. Real quickly here. First, by regular visits into God's Word. I, I don't think that you're ever going to know the wiliness of the flesh, the mask of the flesh, unless you're regularly in the Bible, not just to study it, but to ask it to be a living Word for you. That's why the psalmist says, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my past path. Christ is the searchlight. And He'll point these things out. You don't have to be, you know... Uh, uh, sadistically introspective. His gentle hand in your life is to over time reveal certain things to you so that you can be confronted with things that are not good for you that are in you that need to die so that life may come. But it's His Word that helps expose that. Secondly, there are moments that we need to have of quiet before God. You see, the flesh loves frenzy, busyness, noise, but the Spirit works best in moments of quiet. And I almost hesitated saying that to this body because people are so busy today. But that's why they're so faithless today. The psalmist writes, David in Psalm 139, in the quiet of his heart, search me, O God, and try me. Examine my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. Do you hear what he's saying there? Finally, a real good practical way of seeing yourself as you are is just by good, honest feedback from people who love you. Honest feedback helps keep the gap between what we think we are and what we really are small. And you know that we're all given to some measure of self-delusion. If you don't believe that, all you need to do is read a biography and then read an autobiography, right? <laughs> and see the difference between the two. And often there's great disagreement. Let me give you an illustration in the life of J. Paul Getty. In 1976, uh, Getty published an autobiography called, appropriately, As I See It. The story, however, is considerably different from the one that was written by Robert Lesnar, a biography on Getty's life called The Great Getty. 
in Getty's autobiography, he gives glowing, triumphant uh, words to express his, his adventures into capitalism, uh, which focus primarily on his business successes. When he turns his attention to personal matters, you see a blindness in his autobiography that rears its ugly head. Excuses abound. While admitting that a preoccupation with business contributed to his five divorces, Getty then goes on and is quick to add, and I quote, there are at least two sides to any story. And so he proceeds to defend himself. One divorce is laid at the feet of his intrusive in-laws. Another is attributed to his wife's foolish legal counsel. But when Linzer writes his biography, he paints a much different portrait. He says that Getty was a failure at marriage because he did not know how to love, and his wives constantly told him that. He knew only two chief ways to relate to women, sexually and by means of a financial transaction. In Getty's autobiography, he says, and I quote, I dearly loved all my sons from the moment each was born. But in his biography, it's pointed out that when his 12-year-old son Timmy died during surgery, Getty was too busy to attend his funeral. Lesnar writes, ironically, Getty treated his dog Sean better than his son. When the dog was suffering from a tumor, Getty had the best veterinary surgeon flown in and spared no expense. And when the dog died, he stayed in his room for three days, weeping. Do you think you're given to that kind of dishonesty? If you said no, you're wrong. You're wrong. Every one of us have pockets like that. And we've put up walls to defend ourselves from examination. And when examination begins to move towards us, we put up all kinds of defense mechanisms, anger and defensiveness and withdrawal to keep that wound, that brokenness for, from being seen for what it is so the redemptive ointment of the Spirit can come in and begin to rebuild. The only way that's ever going to change on this earth is for you to die. Death is the beginning point of all of life. Something's got to die. When the Spirit of God brings our flesh into view, whether it's by His Word or moments of quiet or by an honest confrontation or feedback from a friend, the ball comes to your court. The next move is yours. All bets are off apart from you choosing to die. I'm telling you the secret to spiritual life, at least at its beginning point. Death is the essential beginning point to all spiritual life. And none of us who are here today in this auditorium can follow Christ into the deeper channel, into the deeper waters of authentic spiritual life without death constantly parting us from the deep clutches of our own flesh. I want to close with Jesus' words in Mark 8 when he said this. He summoned the multitudes together. And he called his disciples with him. He called all of them together for one hearing. And he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake 
he, she will surely find it. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.